I'm take ten minutes here and answer any questions. There are a couple that were passed to you last night and see if there are any more on the board. And then I thought I'd ask you how this went. See if there's anything you'd like to ask or share about that. So this question is, um, will you please review how to use the body and breath meditation with the hindrances? Yes, I'm happy to go through that again. So the first one, of course, is desire is wanting something. And the way to work with the, the body contemplations with desires to go back to the anatomical parts. And then with aversion, work with the elements. Because aversion, you can see it really strongly with anger. When we're angry, it really solidifies us as we saw. And sometimes that can be one of the attractive properties of anger. We can actually get into a habit of being angry as a way of feeling strong, feeling very much the self. So if we go back to contemplating the body as the elements, the same internally as externally, that can help to dissolve that, that sense of self. And the third hindrance of sloth and torpor, we can work with the in-breath Reflecting on it as possibly the last one, or at least one that's one breath closer to death, and that sometimes can wake us up. There's another question about this in a minute, but sometimes it doesn't wake us up. We just need to sleep. <laughs> but we'll talk about that a little bit more. And the fourth hindrance of restlessness and worry. That can get calmed down by using the in-breath on the impermanence of the body and the out-breath as a letting go. And if the restlessness and worry is there, do that practice, but then put the focus and attention on the letting go on the out-breath to help calm the mind. And the fifth one, doubt, is a so much necessarily those three contemplations, but it's investigation to really take a curiosity, a, a real interest in this doubt. What is this doubt about? And, and really investigate it. And that investigation that sharpens the mind and it helps. It's not like you're trying to find a solution to the doubt, but you're investigating it. And so the, the clarity of mind begins to click in. Doubt's a funny thing. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had times when suddenly I can't make any kind of decision, like what salad dressing to use. I mean, I just, you know, you can notice times when the mind is just so unable to be clear. And what I've noticed that really helps is to just see that, oh, the mind is in this space where it just can't make a decision, a simple decision, even. 
and then invite karma. It's like, okay, I want karma. And it's amazing how it can change just based on setting that intention. Now, struggling a lot with extreme sleepiness. I fell asleep repeatedly while sitting, and before I do focus on breath, it is obscured by dreamlike, dreamlike thoughts and images. I know I came here fully exhausted, maybe I need to sleep. I don't remember exactly what was handed to me, but I know yesterday for me, I was fighting sleepiness all morning, and the first session in the afternoon was such a struggle. And I think a lot of us come into retreat exhausted. I know Ajahn Brahm tells people to just sleep as much as they need to sleep the first couple of days when they come to a retreat. And that's probably a longer retreat. When I go on retreat in the monastery, I give myself the first two days to just sleep as much as I need to sleep. Because even as a nun, I know this is shocking, but even as a nun, we work hard. <laughs> and, and it can be so exhausting sometimes. So there are those times when we just need to rest. And then I find that meditation is so much better. Now yesterday, between those two afternoons, after the first afternoon meditation, I had one cup of black tea, and that gave me enough of an edge that I didn't have the sleepiness the rest of the day or in the evening. So, caffeine is a drug. <laughs> Monastic use it a lot. Especially if you live in one of those monasteries where they want you to sit up all night, one night a week, and it's like, just throws your old schedule off. Um, so anyway, I'm really listening to the body and, and giving it what, it what it really needs because what the point is we want to wake up. I mean really wake up. The ultimate waking up. And we need to be able to work with the body and the mind in a way that we're making progress to that end. And if we're just saying, you know, <laughs> you know it is. I was wondering if you were were seeing me kind of list over to the side. <laughs> but if that's all it is, it's better to take a rest and then come back fresh, I think. Could you explain the bowing before and after sitting? Why three times? Why do the hands touch the head and heart? Spaces. Why? Well, one, one part of the answer is that this is traditional and is part of our training. So we come in to the shrine room and sit down and we bow. When we get up to leave, we bow. Ajahn Shah would tell the monks when you go into your hut, Kuti, you go into your hut, bow. Every hut, you have your shrine in your own little hut. You just have this hut that's like, I don't know, eight by eight or something like that, or eight by ten. Maybe that's a little bit. Six by eight, I don't know, but it's small. And um, you just put it down on the floor. 
sleep and have your little shrine in the corner or whatever and they come into your space and bow. When you get out, when you leave, you bow. When we come and go at our place, we bow. When we come in, we bow and we leave. So what does that do? Well, it reorients the mind, reorients the heart. It reminds us what we're doing in our, in our life. This is about our practice. And the three times to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Those three aspects which are really the awakened mind, the truth of the way things are, and a life of purity. And so it's, it's like, you know, those qualities, being reminded of those qualities, recentering and refocusing oneself. And of course it can get profoundly, but then you have to shave up the mind again. <laughs> this gesture of, people do it different ways, but energetically there's a connection there. I know when I by the heart. There's a heart. You can feel the energy through the heart. So that's that's what I'm saying. I'm wondering if you need some vitamin C. Situation 
absolutely. You can take the same situation and go through it as many times as you feel like there's still energy on it. It's the kind of thing where the more you use it, the better you get at it. And it's very hard with the group to judge how fast to go. But it's intended to give you kind of the, the format. So yes, I would encourage you to, to do it again. Don't expect that the imagery is going to be the same, just let it be what it will be the next time. And the answers may not be the same, and, the, and that will teach you something new. So yeah, I would definitely do that. And sometimes, as we're working with something, even though it bothers us, even though it's something that's obviously there's something behind that in our life, otherwise it wouldn't bother us. Right? Sometimes when we sit to try to work with it, the feeling kind of we kind of lose the feeling, and then it's helpful to bring it, excuse me, more sharply into focus again. And sometimes I'll um, kind of explode it. I had a situation. I was at a Vaidhi monastery, and Ajahn Pasano was my teacher for a long time. He still is. But at that time, he was the teacher for me, and I said something, and he gave a very, felt like a very sharp response, kind of discounting what I said, and I felt very hurt. And the whole next day, I walked in the forest, and I really reflected on this deep need that I had for his approval. And that orientation is really important that we don't locate the problem we're experiencing outside of ourselves. So I could have been, you know, spinning over how he treated me, <laughs> or something like that. But if we turn it around and we look at what is, what is it that causes me to react to this, that's where we get the, the good results. And through that process, I really exploded it. I, I really expanded, you know, like, not just, not just if he discounts me, but what if everybody in my life would discount me? And the reason I did that, went through that mental exercise, was so that I could feel the feeling very strongly. How big can I make this so that I can understand, the, so that I can get behind it at the root of that, of that desire. Again, you know, going back to feeling not good enough. Duh. You know. <laughs> but it's, it's not a mental thing. It's not like just, I can, you know, analyze it and know it. That doesn't get the job done. What gets the job done is to really feel it. Come back to the, the felt sense. Come back to, you know, allowing insight to arise. So this whole process of asking a question and waiting for the answer to come. This, this comes out of a deeper knowing. It's the same way that insight comes. And this is how we wake up. Getting used to letting the mind go still and insight arising in that stillness. And you know when it's insight because some, well, sometimes it's surprising. It's not the answer you expected. It's not being generated through the analytical process. 
Yeah, and I think that's totally okay. I mean, I think in general, it's probably coming from a more intuitive place unless you're really stepping through a reasoning process. And we can often have doubts about, like I said, someone said to me, often people say, but I'm just, I think I'm just making this up. It's like, yeah, you are making it up. It's okay. but I think what you what you find over time, it, first of all, when the Buddha talked about how we need to look at what's wholesome and unwholesome, and make discern, and be discerning about that, we also need to look at that with whatever arises in our own mind. What comes up to bring light to a process we have, or a situation, like a habit we have mentally. If it's real wisdom, it's gonna it's gonna lead us to peace, to happiness. So, you know, just keeping in mind, just watching that wisdom, um, deep intuition, knowing it's going to lead us wrong. So we need to discern and make sure, not to distrust, but just to be aware. Like when the answer came for me, I'll be here and remind you of your goodness. It's going in a good direction. Just use it. Whatever comes, just use it. And we'll... Like with that, you said that we could take more time to review it. Because it, it is hard, I think, when you're, for me to get to that intuitive level. In a, in a shorter span of time. Yeah. And along that line, and, and I feel like I did a pretty good job of it. Um, you know, I wanted to sit there forever and then when we said such subject, but it kept, you know, getting deeper. But um, along those lines of really exploring this, you know, for me, what came up with my mother, you know, of course, my mother, the demon morphed into my mother. <laughs> and yeah, I think if I were to sit with this for a long time, I would go a lot deeper into maybe conditions that don't have anything to do with people. I mean, it's like yeah. more at, you know, different kinds of levels. And um, I just wondered how is this with that, I mean, that kind of, you know, kind of taking it. Right, so the question you should put here is, you know, if if the demon turns out to be someone in your life, how does it work to, to go beyond that persona and go to something deeper? And see where it could go. And see where it could go. And, and I, it's something that I actually is good to have come up because the demon is never someone, someone. It's not about them. It's about, you know, what, what's the unhealed? part in ourselves and you know if if it takes on someone else's someone in our life if it takes on their face if it takes on their their being it is important to look deeper because it's not them 
they're not the problem. And the fuller sense of what the unhealed aspect is in the heart, it's going to have more aspects to it than just kind of one image of someone in our life. So it's really good to, to have that instinct to, well, if I sat with this longer, it would go deeper than that. Maybe once mother or partner or whatever has evoked this and, and triggered this like many times, but they're not the issue, so it's good to know that. And to, and to go back and be present with that felt experience again and maybe again and again and go deeper. Yeah? That's what I'm doing, actually. Asking about the relationship between impermanence and insight. And seeing that some of this processing can kind of validate or reinforce the stories. And I think that's a really good point. So instead of, of letting go of the story, there is this kind of reinforcement of it. And I think what needs to happen, first of all, is the awareness that the story or the content is not the issue. So it's like, instead of thinking through the story, this is one reason why going to the body and feeling how that all feels there is the shift away from the story itself. So when I talked about how I went walking and thought about what it would be like if everyone in my life had treated me the way I perceived a bunch of possible treated me in that moment, it wasn't to come up with more stories or to reinforce the story about being treated that way. It was to intensify this, this felt sense in my body. And when you shift to what that felt sense is in the body, you're working with the feeling that comes up when this thing gets triggered. But it has very little to do with what other people are doing or saying or what the situation is in one's life. Now, I'm not saying that we never have to work directly with the situations in our life because we do. It's important to not continue to expose ourselves to toxic situations and people, it's important to work out what's going on with others in their life or maybe change situations and there's all different reasons why we have to work with what's happening in this reality. But in this case, what we're doing is we're trying to look at how am I wired so that this affects me. So kind of the first level of investigation around what's happening in our life is to see, is there anything dangerous here? 
is there anything toxic here? I've heard so many Dharma talks about how we have to work with what's going on inside and we bypass the fact that some woman is in an abusive marriage and she's getting beat up every third week. And that's not the time to say, be patient and develop loving kindness. It's the time to say, you know, really look at how you might extract yourself from that environment. Right? So that's the first level. Make sure we're actually not in a situation that's dangerous to our body or mind. And if we are, then how best to work with it. Um, I used to uh, counsel about domestic violence, so I know that that's, you know, just taking that as an example, that is not easy. It's not like you can just cut and run. You know, there's a lot going on there. So whatever our situation is in life, we have to look and work with that reality. That's the first thing. If we're safe, relatively safe in our lives, then we can work on this underlying emotional stuff. What is really going on in my mind that keeps me from being completely happy and free? At that level, it's not about what other people are saying and doing, or even situational. It's really about how we're wired inside. That wiring comes from long experience, lots of conditioning, habits that got developed, who knows when, childhood, or previous lifetimes. It doesn't really matter. So it's that shift away from the story, mind, away from the content, and into the body, and into that felt sense. That felt sense is like this whole thing, this whole thing of feeling shame or this whole thing of, you know, when this person says this, this is, this is what comes up for me. That what comes up for me part. And so, impermanence and insight, insight comes, insight helps us see more clearly. Something clicks, like everything that arises ceases, if that really clicks, then we see differently. And we're going to have much less interest or issue with whatever is going on in the world. Not only that you don't have an interest in what's happening in the world, but what I mean is it affects you less. And that's where the insight comes. And the impermanence a true insight isn't impermanent. It's not. It's wisdom. Like the Dhamma is always here. The Buddha said, even if there's no Buddha in the world, the Dhamma is there. It's just there. It's how it works. It's how things work. But the the aggregates are impermanent. Everything that goes into those five heaps, that's impermanent. And it's suffering to cling to it. And it's not self. Does that clarify? So we'll keep working. <laughs> um, it's ten over four. What are we supposed to be doing? Oh, well, we're supposed to be walking. <laughs> Would you like to? Were there more questions? Yeah.
understand. So the question is about this idea of two different selves, like a higher self, which in the case there's a lower self, mm-hmm. and that lower self is sometimes held as quite ugly and despicable, sinful, wicked, whatever. Yeah? And it's being pointed out that this can be found in various traditions and philosophies. So in Buddhism, there is this idea of conventional reality. And then what you might call unconventional or true reality, or I don't know how we want to say it. But there isn't really this concept of a higher self. So we clearly are here. We have these bodies, we have these, these mental faculties, and we're clearly here. And all this stuff is here, and we clearly have a, a complicated society and all those things. And if we just shut that in the, well, that's just impermanent and suffering and non-self category, then there's a good chance we won't be very happy and you're pointing out that we find that very helpful. And we won't take care of things either. I think a much more um, appropriate way to see it, for example, this body, the reason for reflecting on the non-beautiful aspect of it is to try to be more realistic about what's actually there, not get so caught up in beautifying and, and kind of papering over the the not so pleasant parts and loss, you know, the distortions that we bring to life. But on another level, this body is such an incredibly wonderful tool and instrument. Um, it's not to like, oh, this is just disgusting. Yeah, I don't know if you know the story of the Buddha giving this, this teaching on the, the foulness of the body to kind of help the monks reduce their loss. And then he went off into a silent retreat, into private retreat, and then they had a whole bunch of suicides. Mm-hmm. And he came back and he said, Ananda, why do we have so many fewer monks? <laughs> I didn't, I'm not as late, no. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.